welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. My name is Ankit Demija. I am a current cardiothoracic traditional fellow at West Virginia University. Today I will be speaking to Dr. J.W. Awari Hayanga, Associate Professor at the Heart and Vascular Institute at West Virginia University. I will be discussing his thoughts and experiences with VV ECMO. In particular, the indications, technique, management, and the implication of ECMO in the setting of COVID-19 patients. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Hayanga. Thank you for the invitation, Ankit. Let's move directly into the case scenario. This is a 40-year-old male with no previous medical issues who presents with right lower lobe pneumonia, and despite appropriate antibiotics and supportive care, he required ventilator to support him. Over the first 24 hours of him being on a ventilator, his vent requirements were increasing substantially, and you were consulted to place the patient on VV ECMO. Can you walk us through what is going through your mind as you are being called to evaluate the patient for placement on ECMO? Well, this patient seems like a candidate for ECMO. In hypoxic respiratory failure due to any cause, primary or secondary, ECMO should be considered if the risk of mortality is 50% or greater. Now, it is indicated when the risk of mortality is 80% or greater. To put things in perspective, a PF ratio less than 150 on an FiO2 of greater than 90% is associated with a 50% mortality risk. A PF ratio less than 100 on an FiO2 of greater than 90% is associated with an 80% mortality risk. I would further question the patient's indications and verify the patient has not, one, been on mechanical ventilation at high settings for seven days or longer, and by these I mean FiO2 greater than 90% and the plateau pressure greater than 30. Two, not on pharmacologic immunosuppression or with an absolute neutrophil count of less than 400. Three, has not had a CNS hemorrhage, recent or otherwise, that may be expanding. Four, verify that they don't have a non-recoverable comorbidity such as major CNS damage or terminal malignancy. And five, though not an issue with this patient, one must take the patient's age into consideration for there is an increasing risk of mortality with increasing age. That's great. Thank you for that. You call in your team and you are thinking about cannulation strategies on this gentleman. What is your preferred strategy? Our preference is right femoral and right internal jugular cannulation. We perform all cannulations using Selninger technique and access the vein using ultrasound. In most patients, adequate flows are achieved by placing a 20 French Femflex arterial cannula in the right IJ and 25 French multi-stage venous drainage cannula in the right femoral vein. Now, in the process of doing this, we access another large vein to provide support during cannulation and thereafter. We consider single-axis cannulation with a jugular dual lumen catheter for patients that we expect 
to get out of bed and recover faster, or in patients that will need it for longer term, such as those being bridged to transplantation. The preferred location is the right internal jugular vein, but we have also used the subclavian axis in the setting of a trauma requiring a cervical collar or thrombus in the internal jugular vein. But these often involve transportation to the OR, which is a luxury one does not always afford. Now you have your cannulas in place. What next? Well, much of the evidence pertaining to vent settings is drawn from what we have studied in ARDS, influenza, and lung transplantation. The pathophysiology in the acute setting is remarkably similar. Within the literature, there are a number of repeating themes when it comes to mechanical ventilation and lung protection. However, we can all agree that prolonged mechanical ventilation, particularly at high settings, is harmful. Rat models have shown that at the same peak airway pressures, those ventilated with lower tidal volumes developed less severe permeability and pulmonary edema. The injurious factor is volume, and time exerts a multiplier effect. Indeed, the duration of mechanical ventilation is utilized and built into the respiratory ECMO survival prediction model, which predicts mortality in VV ECMO. It is this understanding that becomes the cornerstone of lung protective ventilation. The right amount of PEEP recruits the alveolar segments without compromising cardiac output. So what would be your goal saturation and what would you set your vent at? Now it is important to educate the ICU to make the staff comfortable with O2 saturations between 80 and 85%, as long as the patient is otherwise doing fine, meaning other parameters such as SVO2 and lactate are normal. What are your ultimate goals of the therapy? The most important theme is to let the circuit do the work. Sweet flow rate on the ECMO circuit can be titrated to a target PCO2 level allowing for an immediate reduction of respiratory rate and tidal volume. In doing so, one can almost immediately reduce the minute ventilation on the ventilator. We limit the PEEP to 10 because each centimeter of water is associated with a 36% decrease in survival. Using tidal volume of four to six cc's per kg of ideal body weight, decreases pulmonary injury, decreases pulmonary edema, reduces cytokine production, and protects the alveolar epithelium. What about your FiO2? Steadily decreasing FiO2 to 30% is beneficial because oxygen can induce toxicity in the context of a VQ mismatch and trigger reabsorption atelectasis. Reducing respiratory rate to 10 minimizes the cyclic recruitment and de-recruitment. And this 30-30-10-10 approach has yielded consecutive excellent results, often well above ELSO survival benchmarks, and is likely to speed the time to spontaneous breathing. 
Is this all data-driven? Well, during the Aeolia trial, tidal volume was reduced by 43% and respiratory rate was reduced by 23%, while the PEEP remained essentially unchanged. This represents an estimated 66% reduction in the mechanical power applied to the lungs from 26 joules per minute to just 10. This reduction was associated with a higher survival rate in the ECMO group compared to control. 65% versus 54. What is the most important parameter to watch? By meta-analysis, driving pressure is the only vent setting independently associated with mortality. Driving pressure is calculated by subtracting PEEP from plateau pressure. Therefore, the key to moderating driving pressure is limiting plateau pressure. Most easily, this is achieved using pressure control ventilation. Each one centimeter of water increase in plateau pressure is associated with a 14-point decrease in odds of survival. In fact, a plateau pressure of greater than 40 on day one of VV ECMO has a 30% increased odds of mortality. What are your methods of handling a scenario in which you are unable to maintain their oxygenation at the level you wanted? If you are unable to maintain, troubleshoot the circuit first. Consider larger or additional cannulas. If the issues are not resolved with those maneuvers, consider a bedside TTE. How do you wean patients off the ventilator? It's important to approach the vent with an orientation towards liberating the patient from the vent. Prolonged controlled ventilation without any diaphragmatic contraction results in severe disuse atrophy and increased duration of ventilator support. We perform early tracheostomy and we promote early ambulation. That makes sense. Spontaneous breathing improves oxygenation, improves the intrapulmonary shunt, improves visceral organ perfusion, and encourages early rehabilitation. Given the increase of COVID-19 and discussion of ECMO in the treatment algorithm, what is your institution's experience and your thoughts towards this? We have used ECMO on patients with verified COVID-19 with great success. ELSO recently released guidelines for the use of ECMO in COVID-19 patients. 95% of the patients that required ECMO required only VV ECMO, and 5% required VA ECMO. They have now defined contingency capacity guidelines based upon the magnitude of ECMO capacity available. We have learned from the H1N1 pandemic that the judicious use of this very resource-intensive technology should be limited to those individuals who have the most to gain and who are the most likely to recover, namely younger patients, those with fewer comorbid diseases, and those with a limited number of organ systems involved. Dr. Hayanga, thank you for your time and sharing your knowledge and experience on VV ECMO with us. It has been my pleasure, Ankit.